Kate, when I first asked you to come on the show, what was your reaction? Well, when you first contacted me, Derek, you suggested that you wanted to do a podcast about porn. And I think I immediately replied that that was a fabulous idea for a podcast, not appreciating that you wanted to talk to me about the subject. And when I realized (laughs) that you had in mind to interview me, I got a little bit of cold feet, I think you could say. Kate Julian is a senior editor at The Atlantic, and she's absolutely right. I called her to talk about porn. And let me tell you why. So last year, Kate published a massive cover story for The Atlantic. It was a huge success. Everybody was talking about it. And it all started with a series of research findings by the psychologist Jean Twenge. What she found struck me as sort of beyond counterintuitive. She found that younger people, people in their teens and 20s, were starting their sex lives later, were on track to have fewer lifetime sexual partners, and were having sex less frequently. And in their 20s, were far more likely to be celibate, completely abstinent than past generations. And that just seemed so at odds with most portraits of sort of sexual culture that I immediately wanted to know what was going on. Young people are not having that much sex. Kate called it the sex recession. This is true among all racial groups. It's true for both sexes. It's true across the country. It's true regardless of educational level. We know that other countries, including Finland, the Netherlands, and the UK, as well as Australia, have charted related declines. Research suggests that gay and lesbian people are more likely to have more active dating lives at this point than straight people are, which leads me to think that what I'm calling the sex recession might be primarily a straight person problem. I imagine there had to have been some people who saw the headline and thought, why is this a big deal? Like, people are having less sex. Millennials might be getting married later. So what? Why does this matter? So it turns out that your sex life is a really good barometer for how happy and healthy you are overall. To be clear, I don't mean to suggest that you cannot be happy and healthy and not be having sex. Of course you can. But overall, studies find this really consistent association between well-being and your sex life. You encountered a lot of theories about why this might be happening. Can you give me a brief rundown if you can remember all of those theories? I was told it might be a consequence of the hookup culture, of crushing economic pressures, of surging anxiety rates, of psychological frailty, of widespread antidepressant use, of streaming television, of environmental estrogens leaked by plastics, of dropping testosterone levels, of the vibrator's golden age, of dating apps, of option paralysis, of helicopter parents, of careerism, of smartphones, of the news cycle, of information overload generally, of sleep deprivation, of obesity. Oh, and one more thing. I think there's no way that we could seriously look at this situation with the dramatic increase in availability of porn and dismiss the idea that porn might play a role in it. Sex and tech go way back. One of the first books off the Gutenberg Press was a 16th century collection of sex positions. And with digital tech, porn was the original killer app. It was responsible for some of the first websites, pop-up ads, secure credit card payments, video streams, wherever the internet went, porn led the way. And debates over its destructive powers followed. I discovered in the course of researching and reporting my piece that 
the porn questions are unbelievably contentious, and so I got a little nervous. Where did that nervousness come from? Well, in part, it's because the public debate about porn has turned really pretty ugly. Why so ugly? Because, as you're about to hear in this episode, conversations about porn aren't just about porn. They're about morality, power, ethics, love, crime, violence, technology. The people who care, care a lot. And the people who disagree with them care just as much. I should say that this episode will mention instances of sexual violence, and it may not be for everyone. Some of what you hear may not sit well with you. So given the sensitivity and the stakes of this issue, how do we even frame the big question here? The question we need to ask here is not so much the conventional one of, is porn causing less sex? The question might be more, we are watching porn. Surely that is affecting us in some way. How is it affecting us? For The Atlantic, I'm Derek Thompson. This is Crazy Genius. If we were going to try to come up with a diabolical plan to disable male sexuality and to disempower men generally, we could not have come up with a better plan than to give them 24-7 access to pixel sex. Marianne Layden is a cognitive psychotherapist at the University of Pennsylvania. She directs the sexual trauma program there. Layden didn't set out to study porn. Psychotherapy was something that was always interesting to me. I find human behavior more interesting than anything else. I know that some people have to study rocks, and those probably are interesting to them, but to me, human behavior is the most interesting thing. Very early on, I started to focus on victims of sexual violence. I was treating victims for about 10 years, but I really became more interested when I had been to a talk about perpetrators. And they were talking about perpetrators who perpetrated against children in particular. And they said in this talk, a sentence which I still remember, that perpetrators who are caught and tried and convicted and incarcerated, by the time they've gone through that process, they've had about 240 victims. And it occurred to me that if I wanted to help victims, I probably should figure out why perpetrators were doing it. Because if perpetrators have 240 victims, if we can stop a perpetrator, we can save 240 victims in one fell swoop. So I started to treat perpetrators at that point. And I wanted to know, what is it that you believe? What causes you to do what you do? And that's when it all began to hook up for me. They had learned from pornography a number of messages that were permission-giving for sexual violence. Told them that this is their right, this doesn't hurt anybody, uh, everybody's doing this, you're entitled to this, sex is a need and so you get to do this. All kinds of beliefs that were embedded in the pornographic imagery that they had seen. Ever since she hit upon this connection between perpetrators of sexual violence and pornography, Layden has become one of the field's more famous and respected anti-porn advocates. Now, you might think the case against porn is pretty simple. It replaces people with pixels, a simple substitution effect. Or even that watching porn, kind of like watching Netflix, 
takes time that used to be intimate and reserves it for media consumption. But Layden's case is more complex. In fact, it's threefold. First, she says, porn serves as horrendous sexual education. You couldn't have come up with a better, more perfect learning environment than internet pornography, with the exception that everything it says is a lie. The images involve violence, slapping, gagging, choking, hair-pulling, verbal assaults, almost all men directed at women. And we're showing these images to fifth-grade boys. Now, they have very little experience with sexuality at that point, at fifth grade, and they've got very little to counter these messages. I mean, no parent is going to teach that to their child. And yet, somehow, we're letting pornographers make money by teaching that lesson to our boys. And as Layden has observed in her career, bad sexual education leads to irresponsible and dangerous sexual behavior. That's her second concern about porn that it contributes to violence, especially against women. What we see in children exposed to sexualized messages are that they're more callous sexually. They start to believe that women like certain things that women actually hate. They're asking for degrading behaviors. They're judging their partner. They're increasingly engaged in non-consenting sex, sexual harassment. Given all of the studies we have right now, What's the probability that pornography is not connected to sexual violence? The probability it's not connected is 1 in 88 decillion. That's 88 with 33 zeros after it. Finally, she says it's contributing to an epidemic in sexual dysfunction. We're seeing this dramatic increase in erectile dysfunction in our young men. Like, we used to think of erectile dysfunction as an old man's disease. Now it's a young man's problem. But it's interesting. It only shows up when they're actually with a person. It, it doesn't actually show up when they're interacting with the pixels. How much of a role do you think porn is playing in this sex recession? I think it's playing a huge role. And in addition, it sends a message about what men are like. Everything in pornography says that men are sexually vicious and narcissistic and out of control. And it's a lie. Men are not by nature that way. If they're that way, you have to teach them to be that way. Now, it's also hate speech against women because it says that women are sexually insatiable. They'll have sex with anybody. They're ready to have sex at any, any point. They'll do things that are degrading. They'll do things that are violent, and they'll smile. According to Layden, porn negatively affects every dimension of our sex lives. On the one hand, it means we have less sex. On the other hand, the sex we do have is more likely to be violent, traumatizing, or generally unfulfilling. And Layden's not alone. She is a part of a large group of anti-porn researchers, activists, and even political groups that are working across the country to declare pornography the next public health crisis. According to one Virginia lawmaker, pornography is a public health hazard. The governor of Utah claims pornography is a public health crisis. Well, Pamela Anderson is speaking out against pornography. Porn is, quote, a public hazard that affects men's ability to function as husbands and fathers. The article. But what if they're wrong? This porn thing, give me a break. Porn is not the problem. Coming up, the case for porn. Kind of. We'll be right back.
Since its founding, The Atlantic has been the magazine of the American idea. Each issue's groundbreaking reporting and thinking has shaped the conversation for over 160 years. And if you're a fan of that reporting, the best way to support Atlantic journalism is by subscribing to the magazine. Available in both print and digital formats. And, just between me and you, listeners get an additional 15% discount. Just go to theatlantic.com slash radio subscribe. So far, here's what I've heard. Porn is a public health crisis. Porn is reducing the amount of sex people have. And porn is leading to more sexual violence. Porn is bad. The problem with beginning any sentence with porn is, is you know right from the start that a person is about to generalize about all sexually explicit media. And that's really a mistake. Emily Rothman is a professor at the Boston University School of Public Health, where she researches sexual violence, sex education, and pornography. When I was calling around to various experts on this subject, I found they kept telling me the same thing. I had to talk to Emily. While for some people, seeing pornography is associated with monitoring their own body more closely and feeling more shame about their body, for other people, it turns out that seeing people in pornography who look like they do makes them feel better about their body. Porn is like food, Rothman says. Some of it might be bad, but it can also be good. For example, younger people who are lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, who see pornography. And one person once told me when I was a kid growing up in my small town, pornography was almost like a safe space where I could see adults who were healthy, who were having the kind of sex that I wanted to have, doing their thing and being okay, living. And for this person, that was really inspiring and really helpful. But rather than see porn as a complicated and diverse category, she says anti-porn activists insist on seeing it as a simplistic moral threat. In 2016, the Republican Party had as part of its platform the declaration that pornography is a public health crisis. There are also advocacy groups that are pushing the idea that pornography is a public health crisis or a public health problem and have drafted language that they're hoping will be used in order to pass state-level resolutions that declare that pornography is a public health problem. And there are 11 states that have already passed that type of resolution to some extent. And what are these anti-porn activists claiming exactly? Their first point is that pornography to them perpetuates a sexually toxic environment. So it's causing hypersexualization of teens, that it's serving as children and youth sex education and shaping their sexual template, and about it lessening the desire in young men to marry. So let's go through some of these one by one. What does the evidence that you see say about the addictiveness? of pornography? You know, basically, there is disagreement in the field. So I think the most fair way to summarize the research is that there is evidence that there are some people who may be using pornography compulsively and also people who feel upset about their own pornography use. And people aren't really disputing that. What's under dispute is whether they could possibly be neurobiologically addicted to pornography. 
Another claim that I think the anti-porn activists often make is that digital pornography is causing an epidemic of erectile dysfunction. What do you see the research saying there? There are other phenomenon that have also experienced increases during that same period of time that could be related to erectile dysfunction, right? So depression has increased. People could be reporting problems with erectile dysfunction more consistently, more forthrightly. There are medications available to treat erectile dysfunction that may have brought people out to their doctor to say, hey, I think I'm suffering from this problem. I hear that there's a medication that could help me with it. Whereas the decade before it was invented, they may have thought to themselves, there's not a whole lot that anyone can probably do for me and not mention it to their doctors. A third claim that's often made by anti-porn activists and anti-porn researchers is that it's responsible for an increase in straight male-on-female sexual assault and sexual violence. What does the evidence say there? I think that that is really difficult to prove because the rates of sexual violence, at least according to our nationally representative studies that give us estimates— have not changed substantially over time. So there is no massive increase. In fact, according to the Department of Justice, sexual violence against women declined 60% between 1995 and 2010, just as broadband internet was spreading across the country. That's a pretty strong blow against Leyden's claim that porn is leading to more sexual violence. But there's one claim where Emily Rothman agrees with the anti-porn crowd, strongly. We aren't providing comprehensive sex education in schools, and adolescents are turning to alternative sources of information because they don't have schools uh, necessarily providing them with that information. And sexually explicit media is one place where uh, it's easy for them. They have anonymity, privacy. They can look at pornography and from that try to figure out how to have sex. But pornography was created to be entertainment and fantasy. It's not created to be an instruction manual. And Rothman agrees with Marianne Layden that bad sex ed can lead to unfulfilling or even traumatic sexual experiences in young adulthood. For example, in my own study that I did years ago, there were girls who said because their boyfriend had seen something in pornography, they were then forced or coerced to do that thing, and they were unhappy about it. The problem is that porn consumers are not literate consumers of that medium. When people look at porn, they need to constantly be reminded until they get it that, yeah, it's entertaining to look at this stuff, but you're not looking at a documentary, dude. This is not what real sex feels like. That's Marty Klein. He's a well-known sex therapist and author based in Palo Alto, California. American parents have not said to their kids, listen, we have to sit down and talk about how you're going to deal with this. I'd rather you don't watch it. It's not made for you. I don't think you have the maturity to deal with it. But if you're going to watch it when I'm not around, here's some stuff that you need to understand. And this is what we need to talk about. Reminder. Real sex doesn't feel like porn sex looks. Why is it so important for people to remember that? Because when I look at a cooking show, I know not only my own eating habits, but I know everybody's eating habits. I go to the supermarket. I see what people put in their carts. I go to a restaurant. I see what other people are eating at the next table. 
I have ways of, of calibrating what I see on the mass media when it comes to food. When it comes to sex, most people never, ever, ever get to watch one other person having sex. So most people actually don't know what sex is like for other people. And so when people look at porn or they read about sexually explicit stuff like Fifty Shades of Grey, whatever it is, people don't have enough of a stock of knowledge to compare it to. Porn is not meant to be sex education. In his office, Marty sees the consequences of porn illiteracy all the time. Many of his clients say porn is the reason why they're struggling in their relationships. I think I I see more of these porn cases than most therapists in the United States. Every single week, I have some cases where some people are coming in saying that pornography is the issue. If I heard that there was a sex therapist who every single week was hearing from couples, hearing from patients that their relationship was falling apart, their marriage was in crisis, and porn was playing a role. I would expect that therapist to say, porn is a public health crisis. Every (laughs) single week, I'm hearing from people, and they're pointing to porn directly for ending their marriage, ruining their relationship. So do you believe that porn is a public health crisis. No one's ever put it quite that way to me. Do I think that porn is a public health crisis? No, I don't think that porn is a public health crisis. People decide that porn is the problem. And now the question is, when people decide that porn is the problem, are they usually accurate? And the answer is rarely. I mean, frequently when couples argue about pornography, what they're really arguing about is power. The way Klein sees it, The biggest problem with digital porn isn't the porn part. It's the digital part. We're all walking around with these stimulus response machines in our pockets. And every time it glows, it offers the possibility that your life is finally going to get really, really great. I have couples who come in, they're paying me a huge amount of money because they have a communication problem, fair enough, and then they tell me that Saturday night when they go out to dinner, they both bring their phones to dinner. What does that tell you about people's attachments to their phones? And they're paying me all this money so that I can teach them techniques. So here's a really sophisticated technique. Don't take your darn phone to dinner on Saturday night. It'll be transformative because you'll be stuck with each other for an hour and 10 minutes. Everybody I spoke to comes at the issue of pornography from a slightly different angle. Kate Julian was curious about the sex recession. Marianne Layden works directly with sex victims. Emily Rothman researches sex education. And Marty Klein, he just wants couples to be happier. There are major disagreements among them. And I'm ultimately persuaded that digital porn is not solely responsible for an epidemic in sexual violence or dysfunction or the sex recession. But there's one issue where everybody agreed. The most dangerous aspect of pornography is that it offers vulnerable consumers an infinite buffet of false and potentially harmful ideas about the world. But so does the rest of the internet. If porn substitutes for the human touch, so does social media. If it serves rubbish in lieu of quality online education, well, so does YouTube. It's ironic, 
At the dawn of the internet, people said the web would be a force for good. But the bad news was, it came with all this porn. But now, with 20 years of evidence, it turns out that we were wrong about both sides. Porn may be a problem, but if it is, it's because it's as dangerous as the internet itself. Crazy Genius was produced by Patricia Jacob and Jesse Brenneman, with help from Kevin Townsend. David Herman is our engineer. Breakmaster Cylinder composed our theme song and all the music in this episode. Catherine Wells is the executive producer of Atlantic Podcasts. Adrian LaFrance is our executive editor. I'm Derek Thompson. See you next week.